You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The kittens haven't scratched much so far, but the U.S. government and others are warning organizations to be alert to the likelihood of Iranian cyber attacks in retaliation for the combat death by U.S. missile of Quds Force Commander Soleimani. Fancy Bear is the usual suspect in the case of the Austrian Foreign Ministry hack. Patch your Pulse Secure VPN servers if you got them. Tutok is back in the Play Store, and there's an executive who turned out to be an insider threat. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 7th, 2020. So far, no Iranian cyber operations more serious than the defacement of the Federal Depository Library program have come to public knowledge. As the New York Times points out, that action amounted to picking some pretty low-hanging fruit, more target of opportunity than high-value target, more nuisance fire than fire for serious effect. The group that claimed responsibility calls itself the Iran Cybersecurity Group Hackers, but even people disposed to look for the hand of Tehran aren't concluding that this crew is actually working for Iran. They're at least as likely to amount to nothing more than sympathetic hacktivists. It's certainly possible for an organization to play well below its usual game, either deliberately as a way of preserving deniability or inadvertently, just because they came out flat. But the U.S. government continues to warn that Iran's cyber capabilities are far from negligible and to assess the risk of Iranian cyber attack as high. The Chertoff Group outlines the likeliest forms Iranian cyber attacks might take. These include destructive wiperware, ransomware, distributed denial of service, supply chain attacks, and actions against operational technology. CISA, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, has released a terse warning not to underestimate Tehran's capabilities. In a follow-up to its director's tweeted advice to take a look at what Iran's cyber operators have attempted and accomplished in cyberspace during recent years, CISA singles out four incidents as particularly worthy of study as sources of lessons learned. They are, in chronological order, first, distributed denial-of-service actions against the U.S. financial sector from late 2011 through mid-2013. Second, unauthorized access to control systems at the Bowman Street Dam in Rye, New York, in August and September of 2013, a curious incident we've had occasion to mention before. Third, a whack at the Sands Las Vegas Corporation in February 2014, during which customer data were stolen and other information was wiped. Why the Sands? Well, owner Sheldon Adelson had made some bellicose public remarks about what might be done to restrain Iran's nuclear ambitions. And as Casino.org reminds us this week, Tehran took exception. And fourth, a long-running operation by the Mabna Institute, Tehran's favorite cyber contractor from 2013 through 2017, 
during which academic data, intellectual property, and credentials were stolen for the benefit of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, this effort affected 144 U.S. universities, 176 universities across 21 foreign countries, 47 domestic and foreign private sector companies, the U.S. Department of Labor, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the State of Hawaii, the State of Indiana, the United Nations, and the United Nations Children's Fund. All of these represent capabilities Iran demonstrably has. CISA recommends five steps every enterprise should take to harden its cyber defense posture, disable all unnecessary ports and protocols, step up monitoring of network and email traffic, review network signatures and indicators for focused operations activities, monitor for new phishing themes and adjust email rules accordingly, and follow best practices of restricting attachments via email or other mechanisms. Patch externally facing equipment, focusing attention first on critical and high vulnerabilities that allow for remote code execution or denial of service on externally facing equipment. Keep track of PowerShell usage and limit it to those users who actually need it. And finally, ensure the backups are current and stored in an accessible location that's air-gapped from the enterprise network. CyberScoop reports that the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, that's the MSISAC, has also quietly warned its members to beware of Iranian cyber attacks. And New York State's Department of Financial Services has also advised the banks and other institutions it regulates that they may well receive the attentions of Iranian hackers. So the warnings are out. Whether you're a mobile API provider or an app developer, you know that cyber criminals are increasingly targeting mobile APIs. Tom Tovar is CEO at mobile integration as a service company AppDome, and he offers helpful insights on mobile app API security. As we uh, evolve and as our expectations grow uh, with the technologies around us, there's more and more appetite and more and more demand for mobile APIs to provide the data and the services that mobile apps need to consume to give us all that great stuff. Can you give us an example or two of, of how in our day-to-day we'd be interacting with these things? Yeah, every time we use a mobile app, the app has to do a number of things in order to give us that content. It has to access our our location, uh, It and some of that it can get from the uh, from the device itself, but then it has to provide recommendations based on our loca- location or answers to the questions that we ask based on our location, and that those answers and those recommendations often come from external external sources, which are driven by APIs. So what are the security implications that we run into then because of these interactions? Yeah, well, there are a lot of things, actually. So if you can imagine an application on your phone and a set of systems uh, out in the cloud, if as it were. And it could be dozens, it could be hundreds of systems within, an, within a single mobile application. Uh, and the one mobile app is accessing all of those. One can imagine that there's a lot of information going to and fro uh, between the mobile app and, the, and those systems about us, about our purchases, about our preferences, about our whereabouts, uh, and that information is useful, uh, obviously, to us as consumers, but it's also useful to the bad guys who want to uh, use that for, for nefarious purposes. Yeah, I, I can't help thinking of um, from you know, my own life in the past, you know, growing up, that you had 
on the on electronic devices, you had things like your UL listing. You know that this device has been certified to meet a certain set of standards. It's been tested. Is there anything like that in the works where you can put a badge on something that says that there's been agreed upon standards and there's a certain level of uh, security in this interaction that everyone has agreed to and and met? Yeah, well, I mean, the OWASP top 10 are great benchmarks, you know, Uh, the OWASP Mm -hmm. top 10 for mobile app security and the OWASP top 10 for API security kind of go hand in hand. And any uh, security professional will tell you that a proper security model is always uh, a layered uh, security model. You know, uh, we always advocate defense in depth. You know, you'll hear security professionals talk all the time about how there's not a silver bullet. There's not one thing you can do that you've got to do a lot of things right in order to create a proper security model. So I think the reality of it is there are best practices out in the world that, you know, API providers and, um, and mobile developers can follow. And if you'd like, I can kind of share with your listeners kind of what those things are. Yeah, let's go through a few of them. What are some of the suggestions that you have? Yeah, yeah. So at a minimum, uh, what you need to do is fundamentally four things. You need to secure the the access mechanisms between the app and the API. So all of the keys, the secrets, the URLs, etc., that the app uses to access uh, the the relevant API need to be encrypted, need to be protected within the application itself. You need to also protect the payload, uh, i.e. the data that the app, that the API uh, delivers to the app. And in a lot of cases, that data could be customer banking information. It could be account balances. It could be all kinds of information that the API delivers. So you need to protect that application data, that API data within the mobile app itself, Again, either through encryption or other mechanisms. Encryption would be the preferred. The third thing that you need to do is you need to make sure that the mobile app itself cannot be unpacked or hacked using dynamic or static analysis. So, you know, usually what we recommend are things like anti-tampering, anti-reversing methodologies, or code obfuscation would be the fourth mechanism uh, to basically obfuscate the entire code base so that the hacker can't know, you know, where to attack and, and get at that information. These are the four methods that really comprise the golden rules of API security within within mobile apps. And as long as developers follow these rules, uh, API should be protected within mobile apps. There's still a ton of work that needs to go on within the API backend itself, i.e. within the cloud, and for that, we would point all API providers to the OWASP top 10 for API security. That's Tom Tovar from AppDome. More observers are willing to speculate that the recent cyber espionage incident at Austria's foreign ministry is the work of Russia. We should caution that the evidence for this is circumstantial, almost to the point of being a matter of a priori probability, along the lines of who else is likely to be stirring up trouble in Central European ministries. But the word on the street, as summarized by InfoSecurity magazine, is that it looks like the work of Fancy Bear. Researcher Kevin Beaumont warns that our evil ransomware, also known as Sodinokibi, is exploiting unpatched pulse-secure VPN servers as it prospects larger enterprises. The lesson is a familiar one. For heaven's sake, patch. Vice reports that Google has restored the widely mistrusted Tutok app, thought to be an Emirati surveillance tool, to the Play Store. 
Tutak has denied allegations that it amounts to spyware and denies any connection to Dark Matter, a company widely believed to work for UAE security services. Finally, executives can be insider threats too. The U.S. Department of Justice has announced that one Hisham Kabez, formerly a senior manager working for Manhattan for a global internet company, copped a guilty plea Friday in which he admitted to one count of wire fraud before a U.S. magistrate judge Stuart D. Aaron. The Justice Department primly refers to Mr. Kabaj's former employer only as Company One, but Bleeping Computer identifies it as Rakuten Marketing. Within four months of joining Rakuten, Mr. Kabaj began sending himself bogus invoices on behalf of a shell company, Interactive Systems, requesting payment for firewalls and various other services, none of which were apparently delivered. He sent some 52 invoices between August 2015 and April 2019. The money Rakuten paid went quickly from Interactive Systems to Mr. Kabaj's personal bank account. How did they catch him? At least some of the invoices were submitted as Word documents, and IRS investigators noticed that their metadata showed Mr. Kabaj as the author. This raised some obvious red flags. So, hey, you can learn a thing or two from looking at the metadata. He'll be sentenced shortly by the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, and he could receive up to 20 years as a special guest of Club Fed. Mr. Kabaja's LinkedIn profile says that one of the things he does is transform business processes and streamline them with technology solutions that deliver rapid ROI. That's one way of looking at it. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. 
Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, uh, it is a new year here, and uh, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for you and I to take a look back at 2019, uh, some of the things that caught your attention that were on your radar. Uh, how was 2019 from your point of view? Yeah, yeah, I always love these, like, look at 2019 and review or whatever else, and they're always like, cyber attacks are bad, and people are good, <laughs> and it's always like so high level. Um, I, I, so I like to have a little bit more metrics with them. And we've been hard at work on the the Dragos year in review as it relates to industrial control. These are things we just put out the community that talks about what were the actual, you know, vulnerabilities and everything else, right? And so, yeah. um, you know, as we were starting to compile these and actually have an answer here in the new year, I think one of the things that stands out to me with regards to the industrial control system community, and then I'll, then I'll talk about the, the enterprise and the IT community, but the industrial control system community is uh, I think we've reached a critical turning point or inflection point, I should say, um, in the industrial control system community where there's an executive level awareness that this is going to require an a, a actual strategy for industrial security that's different than the enterprise. And why I say that is 2018, I did a lot of board presentations at these companies. It was very um, endearing and, and, and it was exciting to see them having these conversations. Um, but I probably did, I don't know, 15 to 20 of them. And this year, this past year, I am, have started to see all of the board members that talk to board members who should spread and network and similar. I'm seeing the CSOs have the same kind of talking points. I, I'm seeing an executive level buy-in. We've always had kind of this practitioner level awareness, but executive level buy-in that this is something that needs to be done and can be done. I would like to think that 2019 is going to be that inflection point of the buy-in. Not necessarily we've got everything figured out, but but actually in the industrial control system community writ large, especially in electric, oil and gas, and, and some subsectors of manufacturing. And actually, I'm starting to see it in rail now a little bit as well. But, but we're starting to really see a better community-wide understanding. And so I think we'll move past, you know, kind of my 2020 predictions, if you will, which I hate predictions, but, but move past the let's do the standard and framework and checklist and moving towards let's think about this critically. Now, is every company going to get it right? Of course not. But but I think as a community, we're starting to see that awareness. Now, I mean, personally, for you at Dragos, uh, 2019 was certainly a year of a lot of growth for you, which, um, I mean, can we look at that as being that uh, there's a lot of demand out there for the types of the types of work that you all are doing from, from Dragos and, and other companies in the space? Yeah, and so this is where, in one, like, my day-to-day, I'm such a hyper-competitive person. And if you were in my staff meetings, you would hear me be like, cool, what are we doing against them? And how do we do this? And like, I'm a, I'm truly hyper-competitive. But if I step back for a second, I'm just so damn proud of the fact that there's multiple ICS security vendors. There's multiple um, vendors going through massive growth. Like, it's just a good thing. So at, to your point, that the demand is there, the market is moving, which means the community is growing, which means work is getting done. And even though there's different views on what work needs to get done, those will relate to lessons learned to figure out whose views are better accurate for different environments. And, and I think we're going to get a much better place for it. And yeah, for us, we still do like 300% growth every year. I mean, I, I have over 170 employees now. And this time last year, I think it was at like 
60 or something. Uh, it, it's just every year is this massive growth. I'm excited. I, I don't know. I, I've always been kind of an optimist. There's plenty of things that scare me or make me upset. And, you know, I think some people have, have listened to me before go, you have all this optimism, but look at all these bad things. I'm like, no, no, no. The reason I say this, though, is I've always been intimately aware of the bad things, but I'm seeing the good things. And that's something to get excited about. It's not my underappreciation for how terrible some of these things are, including threats that could literally kill people. But it's my appreciation that our community is just amazing and it's growing and it's good for everybody. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, a good look back and uh, happy new year to you. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.